0: opened. I was at La Carita to get my cordadito. And I'm standing there in line with a, a bunch of other Latin men. And of course, I have been adopted many years ago as an adopted Cubano. I walked up to the window with those ladies, smiles on their faces, and I said, cordadito, please. And I knew I was back home. All of my life and for the rest of my life, when I come into Miami, I will feel like I'm back home. And especially here at Numa Church, I told your pastor this morning that in my lifetime, I have operated mostly in my talent, in my human talent. But you know, that's not a sustainable way to do life in ministry. And when I came to realize what freedom was, and able to identify the things that kept pulling me into my talent, I was trying to do leadership and the Christian life what I call the white knuckle way. God, you've got to help me here. You've got to help me. I've got to defeat these. These, these strongholds in my life. And yet when I realized that Jesus came not only to save us, but He came to set us free. And it was about that time that I began this journey that God intersected me with your pastor, Pastors Chris and Gabby, and I'm here to tell you, they will remember in my own ability, I did not want to, I did not want to help them with the challenge that was up ahead. We have lived this January, we will pass the six-year mark in India, the place that God has called us. And I'm sitting there with Pastor Chris, and I asked him two questions. Do you believe that God needs Numa church? Does Miami need? this church. He had tears in his eyes because the church faced a great challenge. And he looked up at me, this young pastor, and he said, yes, yes, I believe Miami needs Pneuma. I said, number two, do you believe God's called you to be the pastor of this church? And humbly he said, yes. And God intersected our lives in a very strong way. And I could not be more proud of you. And if I say nothing today, hear me, Chris and Gabby. You have stood by the faith. You fought the good fight. God has put together a team that is the right team that surrounds you. Some have come and some have gone. That is the way of the cross. But I am so very proud of you from that first day. And you and all of us are a reflection of that. I listen to this worship team. I say it every time I come, but this is the best worship team Numa's ever had. I am telling you, Brian Houston and Hillsong in Australia, if they saw you guys, they would say this is the best worship in all of Miami. And so I am so proud of you. And I saw an old, old friend. Well, I don't guess he's old. I I just have known him a long time. But I saw Larry Alspa up here on the guitar the very first time I've ever heard him. And my goodness, what talents and gifts that he has. And I'm so blessed to be a part of that this morning and to be a part of this, this whole worship experience. And I hope I don't mess things up this morning. I want to be in the way of of God. I, I want God to lead us and speak to us in an entirely new talk that I'm going to do with you this morning. And so if you would allow me to pray so that I can get my mind and my heart ready and then in this English service, if you'd hold on, uh, I'm going to walk you through some things very personal to me. Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you this morning And I believe you've put a dream in my heart and my wife's heart and our team's heart around the world. But to get to your dream has not been an easy road. And I am sorry for my sins. And I want nothing to stand between you and I this morning. And so I ask your forgiveness. And I pray, Father, that as I get on the other side of that, that this morning we might hear the soft sound of sandaled feet as Jesus comes in and sits down among us. And I ask, Father, that we might hear His whispers today in this city of busyness, in this city of complexity. May this be one place on Sunday morning, here at this location, and to all of those listening online. I pray, Father, this morning that you would receive the glory and that it would be about you, Jesus. For I pray this in your precious name, amen. If we ever come to a point in our lives when we ask the question, does God have a dream for me? I was raised by a steel mill worker. My father was from a small town in West Virginia, hard-working men. My family genealogy is that nowries were made for hard work and war. And being raised in this family, it was always um, you can do better. It was always you're not doing good enough. If your grades weren't straight A's, if you weren't on the first string team, and not even the first string team, but if you weren't the captain, if you weren't the president of your class, you're not working hard enough, you can do better. It was always more. And then when I gave my heart to Christ as a 12-year-old boy, almost immediately I was being raised in a church that was based on performance. How many times you were at church, that you didn't miss your Bible study, that you went out visiting people on Monday nights telling them about Jesus, that you memorized the most verses. And so I found myself between my dad saying, you're not going to amount to anything if you don't work harder and a church that was trying to teach me that the Christian life was all based on performance. But in my young heart, I wanted to help people. And almost immediately, one of my dad's closest friends, a doctor, very, very uh, successful doctor in Hialeah, my dad said, you need to grow up and be like him. So in my middle school years, it was studying to prepare myself to go to a a great college, get a scholarship because we did not have much money as a family, and become a medical doctor. But I can remember I did fine in science. I did fine in history and English. uh, Physical education was no problem, but I struggled with math. And so from the seventh grade, I was being tutored because I had to have a level grades to get the scholarship, to go to the great college, to go into medical school. And I struggled with math. I did not understand the concepts in my mind of complex math. And so I was tutored and tutored and tutored, trying to measure up. And then in sports, you work hard and hard and hard to be picked for the first team. Then you have to make the kick. You have to make the, the field goal. You have to catch the pass. You've got you've to make the bucket. You've got to look a certain way, talk a certain way, be a certain way, and it was always more. By the time I got to college, I got that scholarship to Stetson University, a full-ride pre-med biology major, and I thought, I've, I've made it. When I began to take classes, the kids that were in my classes, these advanced students, they understood the concepts of math beyond anything I understood. And now I didn't have my tutor and I couldn't make the grade. So every time I'd get the homework assignment, I'd look at that page, and all alone in my in my dormitory room, I'd I'd plead with God, I'd say, I don't get it. I, how am I ever going to fulfill my dream of being a medical doctor and compete with these other kids? I don't understand. And I'd tell my mom on the phone, I'm not cutting it in mathematics, mom. My dad could hear me on the house phone. This is way before the days of cell phones. And I would hear my father in the background, you tell him he better do it. And so I never felt like I measured up. And at the end of my first year, the academic dean called me into his office, and he said, Kirk, I don't think you have the grades to stay in pre-med biology. And my world was shattered. How would I go back home and tell people that I was no longer studying to be a medical doctor? What would I say to my dad, especially to my mom, and my brother. My entire life from the age of 12 was all based on performance. And now a shattered dream left me in the dorm room, in the darkness, not even wanting me to face my peers. When for the first time in my life, I got down on my knees, and I said, God, what do you have for me? Richard Foster calls it the prayer of tears. And I wept. No one looking around. I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I wasn't certainly at a place where I ever realized I would be on a stage teaching like I am today. My dream was shattered. And in, that, in those days that were ahead, I I cried and prayed and I cried and prayed until finally I came to a place in my life I said, God, what do you want of me? And I don't care how old we are today. That college student or all the way up to I'm probably the oldest guy in the room. But until after your salvation, you come to a point to where you fully surrender I mean surrender to say, God, what do you have for me? Do you realize that, that God never wanted you to chase your dream? He wanted you to chase His for you. And on that night that I finally just broke and surrendered... God said, you're ready to hear the dream I want to put in your heart. Forty-five years later now, you watch this video. That's our team, our daughter, our work on three continents in five hope centers. This morning we have more than 2,000 children that every morning I get up, as I did today to get my coffee, we're responsible for in our mission to rescue children in the poorest places of the world and transform their lives in Jesus name. That's not my dream. That's God's dream for me. Mark Twain says that there are two important dates in your life. You know what they are, the two most important dates. Number one is the day you're born. And number two is the day you discover why. I know many of you, but there are many of you that I don't know this morning. And I know every one of us, from the very back to the very front, to the youngest to the oldest, that God wants to plant in your heart his dream. Because until you get to that place, you feel like a rat in a cage. You're just talent, performance, talent, performance, money, complexity. You know, especially in Miami, go here, do that. And at the end of the day, you don't even have time for His whispers. Do you believe this morning that God has a dream for you? All I can say is, that on September the 21st, 1974, a Thursday night, all alone, just me and God in a dorm room, I fully broke and fully surrendered my dream for God's. You know, when I was in my 50s, my dad was in his 70s, My dad lived a life, he always felt like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He'd get up at 4.30 in the morning and go to work down here in Florida City. He lived in Fort Lauderdale. He drove one way every day his entire career, one way all the way back. Worked in heavy construction, building pre-stress beams for the bridges all over Miami and South Florida. But dad always gave me the idea that he felt like he didn't measure up. Now listen carefully, fathers and grandfathers. My father didn't feel like he he measured up because his dad made him feel like he didn't measure up. And then my dad's way of raising my brother and I, especially me, his oldest, was that I didn't measure up. It's a tremendous pressure to put on your son's until finally in my 50s, I said to my dad one day, Dad, did you ever, did you ever have a dream? He just worked so hard, good man, loved my mom, went to church every Sunday. I said, Dad, did you ever have a dream? And he said, yes, son. I said, what was your dream? And he looked up at me. He's in his 70s. I'm in my 50s. He said, I wanted to be a high school football coach. He was all West Virginia. He had 25 college scholarship offers from the the biggest schools in the nation. Very successful. Fought a war. Married my mom. Raised two sons. And it was in my 50s that I asked my old father, Dad, did you ever have a dream other than what you're doing? He said, sure, son. Just a high school football coach. I said, Dad... Why didn't you do it? One of the most heartbreaking answers I've ever heard in my life. He looked up at me, son, and he said, I, don't know. I didn't know how. I thought my dad was eminently qualified to coach any high school team and probably a lot of the college teams in the country. But they're this steel mill worker, blue collar hardworking man that's father taught him he'd never measure up, said to his son, I didn't know how. I'd like to see a breakthrough in many of you men this morning, because I came to a point in my life that I did not want my sons to think they didn't measure up. I wanted to break the genealogy of strongholds to realize that a relationship with God is not based on performance. Your pastor's been teaching on stewardship the last few weeks. You're in a a focus to get to June in these commitments that you've made. And I've got to say to you this morning, there's not a not a better goal to have because you see, the hope of the world is the local church. Here we do life and our relationship with God. But many of you are like me, you're trying to do stewardship like this. Can you see my knuckles? This is how we're trying to do stewardship the White Knuckle Express. But I'm here to tell you that's not the way to do stewardship performance in any area of the Christian life will collapse if it's not born out of a genuine relationship and freedom that leads you to a place of compassion. My dad said, I didn't know how. I wish I could have been his high school or college coach And been able to sit down with my dad when he was coming out of college successful, but needed someone to take him by the hand and walk him into an administrator's office. If he could have just walked into Dade Christian School and I'd been the pastor when my dad was in his 20s and said, Bob, I want to make you my head football coach not measuring up would have been lifted off his shoulders. I'm going to trip over that if I have to. And so it comes back down to this. This is what I've learned as a teacher. It starts with, do you, now if you want to dream, I don't, don't say you can't do it at a certain age. God called me to India when I was 60. I looked around the table when the, uh, when the plea was made to go to India. And I said, this is not for a 60-year-old man. This is for a 30-year-old man. And I'm looking around. There's no 30-year-old men sitting around. There's my wife who's got me by the leg. And God whispered in my ear. And you're going to see in a minute, you better heed the whispers of God. That, that he whispered in my ear, Kirk, Thursday night, September 21st, 1974, you made a promise to me to follow the dream I put in your heart. And I looked up at my friend who af- who said to me, would we be willing to go to India? Now, January will be six years. And I'm here to tell you it's the greatest adventure that my wife and I have been on in our entire lives. Our mission to rescue children and transform their lives in Jesus' name, that I didn't step into that world until I was 60 years old. We have a table sitting out here. My wife has things our girls have made in India. You can stop by and see them and get some of them if you want, but I'm here to tell you one of the remarkable, remarkable things about God is I'm 65 years old now and I live in India. And I don't mean I live in, in New Delhi, India. I don't live in the big city. We live in a remote place in leper colonies. And we work in leper colonies, remote villages, side-of-the-road places where girls are sold every day, where you can buy a, buy a young girl for about the equivalent of 50 cents U.S. and have sex with her. She's sold into slavery. She's sold into, into all forms of trafficking. And We rescue those girls, and we tell them that God has a dream for them and transform their lives in Jesus' name. Jesus had a dream. Until you understand Jesus' dream, you'll never get to your dream. He's our Savior. He's my Lord. How do you get to your dream? First, understand Jesus' dream. Luke chapter 4, they're going to put it up on the screen. I'm reading from the NIV Bible. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Now, I'd like for you to do this if if you're holding a Bible, and I don't mind electronic Bibles. Yeah, I know I'm old school. I believe everybody ought to have a Bible. The reason is in your electronic Bible, you can't make a note and put a date in the column That when you come to that place late at night in your dorm room, in that place that God whispers to you, that you go to this passage of Scripture and say, I remember. Ready? Luke 4.14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, (coughs) and news news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, (coughs) and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, here it is The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim, here it is, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now that can be freedom for those in jail, but that's, I think, most especially freedom from the strongholds. Freedom from the hurts. Some of you are carrying wounds you've carried all your life, like I did. And you're handing them down to your children and grandchildren. And at some point, you've got to break those chains. Jesus said, I've come to bring recovery of sight for the blind, spiritually and physically, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. That was the dream of Jesus. It was prophesied from Isaiah. That's what He came to do, the will of His Father. I was devastated when I couldn't get the mathematic concepts. It was but the beginning. That broken dream was the beginning of God placing His dream inside of me. We have two little girls in our India Hope Center. Their names are Sheila and Sanjita. In India, people are are classed. It's that way here in America. But because of extreme poverty, the lowest caste in India are called deletes. They're considered less than human. They live on the side of the road, they're nomadic, they go place to place. They have no access to education, no access to to health security, no access to regular food. Uh, It is so normal in India for a father to sell one of his children, whether it's a boy or girl, but girls are sold first. They are simply commodities Sheila and Sanjita lived in a tent on the side of the road. Their father was a drunken alcoholic, a gambler, an abuser. These two little girls we recruited and rescued for our Hope Center. They were just about six years old at the time, dirty, covered in lice, full of parasites and worms and their lives began to be transformed. We provided education. We teach them how to speak English. I wish you could see the girls today. You would say, they're absolutely beautiful. I was here in the U.S. on break, and the director of the Ashmer Hope Center, Joseph Thomas, called, and he said, Grandpa, that's what they call my wife and I over there, uh, Dottie and Dada G. I'm Dottie G. That's Grandpa. My wife is Dottie. That's Grandma. We have 221 children in that Hope Center, girls. Joseph, our director, calls and he says, Grandpa, Sheila and Sanjita's father's coming. He's going to take the girls and sell them. Now, if I had been on that compound, it would have been a different thing. That's how God made me. But I was here in the U.S., and I began to weep. And it was at a moment in time that I said to God, If that is going to be what happens there, I don't want your dream for me. My heart was attached to these two girls, as they are all of them. I said, God, we've got to be able to do something. So I had Joseph talk to the father. He said, no, I'm taking them. And so that night I wrestled with God. It's okay to wrestle with God. He's got big old shoulders. You can wrestle with him. Can't win, but you can wrestle with him. I wrestled with God that night. I thought to myself, God, you've got to tell me what to do. And he whispered in my ear, find out how much that father will take to leave the girls at the center. I called Joseph. I said, when he comes in for the girls, ask him what he'll take to leave the girls with us. Joseph said, how how much should I pay him? I said, I don't care how much you have to pay him. Joseph, whatever it is, we'll do to keep those two girls. So the father came in to take him. He was all bowed up and upset. He knew it was to be a fight, and Joseph's not that kind of director. And he asked the father that question, and the father said, in Indian rubies, the U.S. equivalent was about $25 U.S. per girl. So if I said to you today, is it worth your investment, $25? How many of us will spend more than that for lunch today? But you see, it's not really about the money. Because when I was sitting at a picnic table at a funeral, six or seven years ago now and my Closest mentor and friend, Andy Steimer, said, Would you and your wife consider going to India? It was the dream on God's heart to transform those two little girls. We have more than 2,000 children now in our five centers around the world. But if he whispered to you, Would you be willing to go? And rescue those two little girls and transform their lives. Would that be worth your life? See, in America, it's all about the biggest and more and whatever whatever we think the American dream is, what we think we deserve. When Jesus, he didn't have a place to lay his head at night. We're still competing for our neighbors. Attention, who's got the best car, the newest golf cart, the slickest boat, the newest motorcycle? Who has the most toys is going to win. But the complexity of that life, what you're trying right now to get your kids for Christmas, within moments after they, they open their presents, because of American culture, you mark it down, they're going to say, is that it? Well, where do you think they learned that? The dream God the Father had for Jesus was Luke chapter 4. What's the dream God has for you? Bill Hybels, one of the great pastors and leaders of the 80s and 90s, had a huge impact on my life, Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And back in the the late 80s, I went to a conference, and I remember him saying this. Now, if you're trying to find God's dream, and you're going, I just am not happy. I'm not filled with joy. I don't know peace. I feel like I'm still chasing the wrong things. Here's how Bill said it. What's the one thing in the world that you're upset about right now? One thing in the world you're upset about. I mean really upset. I mean, when you, I talk about girls being sold for the equivalent of 50 cents U.S. What is that thing for you? And where is that? Bill said you ought to go spend the rest of your life trying to change it. But after every one of these talks that my wife and I do, we go out to the table or we stand down front, we show these videos and people would say, I could never do that. And I wonder where that comes from. Now, I can tell you that for a lot of the rocks my dad laid down on my shoulders, one of the things that he laid down on on my shoulders that I have not taken off, and that is that a man gets up every morning and he does the right thing no matter what the cost is to him. Where do we come by saying, oh, is that God's dream for me? No, not me, not me. Find the one thing in the world from the comfort of America and figure out how you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to change it. All right, I got four thoughts that I want to give you to close. Just four thoughts, simple statements. If you'll listen carefully, these flow out of my life This is a 65 year old guy wanting to pass down to you some things that I wish that I had solidly put in place when I was 30. Number one, if you lower the ambient noise of your life and expectantly for those whispers of God, your ears will hear them. And when you follow their lead, Your world will be rocked. You've got to lower the noise. I was telling Chris a moment ago, I said, after church today, we'll go out and have a lunch. It's hard to find a place to go have a lunch that's quiet. The food's great. I hope today we're eating Cuban food. I didn't, come in, I didn't come to Miami to eat something else. So if we go have Cuban food, you get in there and it's so noisy, so busy, people not managing their kids, running around, all that stuff going on. By the time you get done with your meal, you get your, uh, my pickup truck and you go, Phew. Lower the ambient noise in your life and listen for the whir- whir- whispers of God. And when you follow their lead, your world's going to be rocked. Number two. Life's great moments evolve from the simple acts of cooperation with God's mysterious promptings. Did you ever have a thought and go, where'd that come from? Now, Satan works hard at us a lot, and you go, where did that come from? But I'm talking about those promptings that the Holy Spirit of God whispers to you, and you go, where'd that come from? You better listen. You better act, because the greatest moments of your life are going to come out of that obedience. Number three. You may well have to simplify to live the God, the life God's inviting you to live. You know, a lot of people are their life so complex: sports, travel, teams, multiple cars. Too big a house. Do you know that it's only in America? uh, Listen to me now. I'm not, I don't know anything that's going on right now, so don't think Pastor Chris told me something. But do you know that only in America do we tear out perfectly good kitchens to put in another kitchen? We're so entangled in the things of this world because we think we deserve that. But I'm telling you, there's a judgment coming. And fourth and last, the heart and soul of the Christian life is learning to hear God's voice and then developing the courage to do what He asks us to do. That's the heart and soul of the Christian life. Learning to hear God's voice and then developing the courage to do what He asks you to do. What's He going to ask you to do? Do you actually, do you really want God's dream for your life? No matter what your age? As we close, let's watch this last video. take a train in India and you end up in New Delhi. It's the end of the train line. They call it GB Road. I say GB Road and it puts shivers down my spine and knots in my stomach. You take a train in India and you end up in New Delhi. It's the end of the train line. They call it GB Road. I say GB Road and it puts shivers down my spine and knots in my stomach. You see, it's the center of sex trafficking in India. Literally tens of thousands of girls are brought in to GB Road. They come in from Nepal. They come in from Bangladesh. They come in from rural places in India, from the cities. Not one of them come there willingly. Every one of them is stolen away. None of them realize what's about to happen behind those windows in a room six feet by three feet wide. There's a lock on the outside of the door. They live their life in that room. It's there where food is brought. It's there where the next man stands in line. Whether they're preschool girls or they're teenage girls, they are kept till they're no longer of use. Many of them die. They're simply discarded in trash piles. There's 1.2 billion people in India, so they are the forgotten. Government does nothing. Police don't follow up. They're just one of the girls from GB Road. You look up into these windows, these 12-inch by 12-inch windows, and you see the faces of the girls, and and down at the ground are, are literally thousands, thousands of Indian men. They are trafficked by pimps that stand guard and watch. So none of these girls will escape. Even at the train station, there are lookouts. That should one girl run down the stairs and get away, they are violently brought back. And so with the same aggression that they are brought to GB Road. Many years ago now, our the whispers of God, a life fully surrendered, and the courage to go do it. You may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ. You can't say that your sins are forgiven. My journey began with an old crippled preacher that told me how I could invite Jesus into my life. And my life was forever changed. The moment I'm going to pray with you, and if you'd like to pray a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior, you can do that. But I'll bet many of you are here this morning all bound up in wounds and hurts and strongholds and stuff that's been passed down. You, especially men, we push it down and we push it down, we push it down, we take the white knuckle ride. But we don't realize we're passing that stuff down to our kids and our grandkids. Some plot to point, aren't they worth breaking the chains that bind us and finding freedom and living a surrendered life to the dream God always wanted to place in your life, you say, Pastor, it's too late. Oh, it's never too late. If he can call a 60-year-old man to go to the other side of the world to rescue a couple of girls, it's the greatest dream I've ever lived in my life because it's God's dream. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Now, if you're here today and don't know Christ, I want you to pray a prayer that has been prayed since the cross of Calvary. That prayer goes like this Dear God, I'm a sinner. And this morning, I'm sorry for my sins. And right now, I want to invite Jesus Christ into my life, and make him my Savior and Lord. I believe that he died on the cross for me and Today, I fully surrender to Him. I pray that in Jesus' name. While our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed, I wonder how many of you would say, I'm willing right now to surrender my life to whatever God chooses, whatever that is. I want His dream for my life. And you'll go through these four principles you didn't write them down, you'll get them off these slides. The church will be glad to get them to you. But you'll end the year to begin 2021 not back to the old normal, but back to the new normal. Back to a place like you've never been before with God's dream for your life. Pray this prayer with me. Father, I've come on this Sunday morning, December 6th, and you have spoken to my heart. I want to I heed. I want to hear and do what the whispers of the Holy Spirit are to me right now. And so, Father, I pray that my life would be fully surrendered to you, whatever you choose, whatever you ask me to do, wherever you ask me to go, that I would be willing to do that in Jesus' name. Now, look up this way at me. It's hard for a man or a woman to admit the struggles that they're going through. We want people to think we're on top of the world. Sometimes we need help. There's freedom ministry here. All you have to do is go to Pastor Chris, Pastor Gabby, and say, I need somebody to talk to about freedom. Boy, I wish someone had taught me when I was 30. But you can go over here to the the prayer room in a minute or the guest reception and just say to them, would you have someone write my name down that I could talk to this week and get real freedom to hear the whispers of God? You may be here this morning in a place of surrender and say, you know, I want God's dream for my life. How do I do that? Don't be like my dad and say at the end of your life, I didn't know how. Because the staff here, The pastors here will help you know how. It's not complex. The world is complex. Jesus is simple. He said, put down your nets and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. So thank you for listening to me this morning in this story. Come by our table out there if you'd like to, to to talk about how you can become a part of this journey with us. But to Pastor Chris, Pastor Gabby, you're a benediction to the year in our lives. And I thank you for it. Worship team, Larry, I'm glad to finally get to hear you. So many of you I've known a long time. God bless you.